If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Buzz around artificial intelligence is seemingly everywhere. Is your portfolio keeping up? Consider the Global X Artificial Intelligence and Technology ETF, ticker AIQ, which invests in dozens of stocks at the leading edge of this disruption. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Technology companies can be affected by rapid product obsolescence and intense industry competition. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's objectives, risks, charges, expenses, and more in the full or summary prospectus at GlobalXETFs.com. Read carefully. Distributed by SEI Investments Distribution Co. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Many of the discussions about the British Empire are dominated by statues and street names. But today, we're delving into the economic and legal legacies of imperialism. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Kojo Karam about this overlooked aspect of Britain's imperial past. And they follow the money to see how empire and its end contributed to global inequality that persists to this day. So coming from a law background, what perspective can you bring to the historical debate surrounding decolonisation? Well, thank you for your invitation, first of all. And I think that the real contribution that I can make, coming from a legal background, is by expanding the frame through which we've been having this conversation around decolonisation in Britain over the past few years. I think that ever since the kind of Edward Colson statue came down in June 2020, there's been a lot of media attention on this question of decolonisation and empire, and we've seen it debated in universities, we've seen it debated in museums, we've seen it debated in art galleries, and decolonisation has really been this kind of like culture war phenomenon. It's been about, you know, what statues do we have in our public squares? 
what um, names do we have on our roads? What do we sing at the last night of the proms? You know, all these different types of cultural topics have been the terrain under which decolonization has been debated. But I think when you come from a legal background, and also when you think about questions of the material, of the economic, you think to yourself that, well, decolonization wasn't all about statues. I mean, empire wasn't a kind of global statue building project. It was about the transfer of wealth across borders in order to enrich a particular metropole. And that's an aspect of decolonization, I think, that we're missing. And I also think it's one thing that's really started to become increasingly important when we look at issues such as the recent attention about Russian oligarch wealth that has taken residence in London over the past 20 years. Um, we're now having this other public conversation about why is it that not just Russian, but Saudi and Nigerian, all different types of kleptocratic wealth around the world seem to choose Britain as their base of operations. And a lot of it has to do with the legal provisions and arrangements that are the hangover of our imperial project. Things like the non-dom rule, which was initially established to encourage imperial entrepreneurs to be able to go overseas and not have to pay tax on the wealth that they accumulated overseas, that's the very tax status that the Russian oligarchs and other wealthy individuals are coming to Britain to be able to benefit from. Things like Britain's overseas territories that we know are the leading tax havens in the world, the Cayman Islands, the British Virgin Islands, Bermuda, established by the Tax Justice Network as the top three corporate tax havens in the world, access to those tax havens are, again, what brings over oligarch wealth from all around the world to take up residence in the UK. And so these other material and legal legacies of empire, I think, have really been ignored over the last couple of years when we've debated decolonization. And I think we really need to bring them back into the public conversation. And why do you think they have been ignored? I think that part of the reason why it's been ignored is because it has been very convenient, particularly for a lot of government ministers and politicians, to present the debate around empire as simply being another issue of identity politics. This is just about questions of racial resentment. This is about doing down Britain. This is about attacking everyday British people. And that's the only reason why people would want to talk about the legacies of empire. It's not because they'd have a concern with issues such as wealth inequality, issues such as insecurity of work, issues such as precariety of employment. They've been able to kind of place in opposition the entire conversation around empire with concerned with the left behind, concerned with those communities that need to be leveled up in the kind of contemporary conversation. And so when you make decolonization a simply cultural and symbolic issue, you can place those two things in opposition to each other. But when you move it onto the terrain of the legal or the economic, then you have real difficulty trying to convince people in working class left behind towns that when people are talking about empire, they're attacking them because they know they don't benefit from non-dom rule. They know they don't have blind trusts registered in offshore tax havens. They know that a lot of the other protections that the corporate legacy of empire benefit from don't benefit them themselves. And so I think that by moving the conversation onto issues of the legal, 
in the economic legacy of empire, not only do we fill in the blanks of our history and fill in all these different stories that we don't know about from the Anglo-Iranian oil company to the Ashanti Goldfields company, but we also do, I think, the really useful political objective of bringing together people who are concerned with questions of race and empire with people who are concerned with the interests of the left behind and the working class here in Britain. Well, I'd definitely like to talk more about decolonisation in Britain later in the episode. But first, I wanted to drill down into this transfer of wealth that happened during empire. What are the main ways that the empire does hoard wealth for itself? Well, one of the main ways through which empire facilitated the transfer of wealth was through the privatisation of the imperial project. And this is something that I think often gets ignored when we talk about the history of empire. We might describe empire in nationalistic terms. We might talk about the British Empire versus the French Empire versus the Belgian Empire. We might even talk about it in racial terms and focus on the way in which racial ideology was used to devalue different human beings around the world. But to a large extent, particularly when we think about the British Empire, imperialism was a commercial project. It was advanced by private companies with the support and the legitimacy of the state backing them. But private companies like the Hudson Bay Company in North America, the Royal Niger Company in Nigeria, the Royal African Company in West Africa, and perhaps most famously of all, the East India Company across the Indian subcontinent. These private companies acted almost like de facto sovereign powers all across the world, accumulating wealth for themselves and disciplining and controlling populations, whilst at the same time allowing the history of empire to be almost one step removed from the national narrative. We don't want to think about the operations of the East India Company because that doesn't seem like the British story. It's not part of the the story of the British state. You know, that is from the Tudors to the gunpowder plots to, you know, the Glorious Revolution to Queen Victoria. That nationalistic story gets encased within the borders of Britain, and then so much of the imperial project gets classified as the interest of these private companies who really wants to read, you know, the accounting books of the East India Company. But in those accounting books, in those private corporate histories, is where a lot of the empire was actually created. So if we drill down into those accounting books then, what techniques would we find for moving wealth from other nations and taking it back into Britain? We would see the use of a lot of legal techniques. And this is where, again, being a legal scholar is useful for analysing this more privatised element of the imperial project. We would see the use of property law and contract law to disempower and dispossess people of their lands. We would see the use of also kind of quasi-sovereign rules of taxation and policing and even military. We need to remember that the East India Company at the time had a military um, organization that rivaled any other major nation in the world. And we would see the way in which we would have this kind of gunboat diplomacy that was exercised by these private companies in order to disempower communities and in order to accumulate their resources and transfer them across borders. So when we come into the time of decolonization, What happens to these companies, to these techniques? 
So this is where I think we see a real conflict between the property rights that these companies had expanded for themselves all across the world and the newfound rights of sovereignty that all of these nation states were gaining across the world. When we remember that prior to decolonization, we really didn't live in a world of nation states, but in a world of empires, when we go to that transition into the world of nation states after the Second World War, with the institutionalization of international law, with the United Nations, and with the rapid claiming of sovereignty by all these other colonized territories around the world, we have those private companies that have benefited from the imperial structuring of the globe facing a real problem. Now, rather than moving their wealth under the umbrella of one jurisdiction, the British imperial jurisdiction, they had to answer to three, four, five different governments in order to facilitate their trade and their wealth accumulation. And we can see that really visibly when we look at the conflict between companies like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company and the Mossadegh government in Iran. And for those listeners who might not be familiar, following the emergence of Mohammad Mossadegh as the Prime Minister of Iran, he sought to use the sovereignty of Iran to claim ownership over the oil refineries in the Abadan region, which were the property of the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company. And this conflict put the British government in a really curious position because at the same time that Mohammad Mossadegh was nationalizing the oil refineries in Iran, the British government of Clement Attlee, now famously canonized as you know one of the most progressive prime ministers in British history, was also nationalizing failing industries here in Britain in order to establish the welfare state, the National Health Service, and the expansive program of council house building. And so one might have expected the British government to have a little bit of understanding for what Mohammed Mossadegh was trying to do with sovereignty in Iran. But instead, the British government lent its weight and support with the Anglo-Iranian oil company, not only seeking the UN Security Council in um, resolution in order to be able to wage war in Iran, which failed. They then took Iran to the ICJ, which also failed, and eventually were able to replace Mossadegh by a coup d'etat with the allegiance of the United States as well. And so by supporting the Anglo-Iranian oil company against the sovereignty interests of what was then called third world nationalism, I think that the British government at the time did a lot to create the world that we live in today, where multinational corporate power seems to be free of accountability to any sovereign government, not only in the developing world, but maybe also in the developed world as well. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Edward Colston wasn't simply a slave trader in terms of he was going to the Gulf of Guinea and capturing people on his own. He was the director of an entire company, an entire network, an entire economic juggernaut. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it. So your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and... What do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And can you give some other examples of how developing nations reacted to this and tried to address this global power imbalance? Absolutely. Um, so one of the most significant projects of trying to readdress this global power imbalance came with the attempt to create a new international economic order through the United Nations that was really led by the Jamaican Prime Minister of the 1970s, Michael Manley. And so Michael Manley, like Mossadegh, like Kwame Nkrumah in Ghana, realised that the achievement of legal sovereignty, of political sovereignty, was only one step in the decolonization project because so much of the wealth of empire was not held in that realm of political sovereignty, but in that realm of private capital. And so once they faced that obstacle, Manly thought it was important to unify all of the recently decolonized nations in the United Nations in order to get a new resolution passed that would allow a rebalancing of power between those private corporations that operated in their territories and the new governments that had emerged. And this resulted in the drafting and passing of a UN resolution that still reads incredibly radically today, which is the New International Economic Order Resolution. And this resolution included a commitment to allow countries to have permanent sovereignty over their national resources. It allowed them to be able to hold transnational corporations to account in terms of their own local regulations. It allowed things like a right to food to be enshrined in international law. And even though it was passed at the UN level, eventually it was defeated and placed into the, um, into the kind of dustbin of history by what we call the neoliberal revolution in the Atlantic world. And so at the only North-South conference in 1980 in Cancun, the representatives of the United Kingdom and the United States, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, 
went over and above themselves to ensure that the provisions of the new international economic order would not receive binding commitment from all of the different nation states that have gathered there today. And instead, the answer for the decolonized world became foreign investment, loan agreements from the IMF, and structural adjustment programs. And so what I try to do in the book is to really recover a lot of these lost moments, recover the um, attempt to try and exert sovereignty over the Anglo-Iranian oil company by Mohammad Mossadegh, recover the project of the new international economic order that was advanced by Michael Manley, and really try to put, put into conversation with our contemporary moment and make people think that, well, if we had our chance again, would it be in our interest in terms of not just people in the developing world, but even people in the developed world in the United Kingdom to be in support of the Anglo-Iranian oil company against Mohammed Mossadegh, to be in support of austerity policies against the international economic order. When we think about things as, as immediate and material as the coming energy crisis, we can see how the consequences of supporting the Anglo-Iranian oil company are now impacting on daily life here in the United Kingdom. The Anglo-Iranian oil company, of course, after the Abidjan crisis, became British Petroleum, now known as BP. And as we're in the midst of the energy crisis, the chief executive of BP has gone on record talking about how the energy crisis is going to turn his company into a cash machine, whilst the cries from British people for there to be a windfall tax on these energy companies in order to help everyday people pay their escalating bills is being ignored. And so that's what I really want people to wrestle with a little bit more, that if we had our chance again, would we support companies like BP or would we support individuals who were trying to place sovereign control over the global capitalist world? We're trying to, in kind of contemporary language, take back control. And what would you say to people who might criticise your viewpoint? Um, well, I would ask them whether they take seriously the issue of global wealth inequality and to think about the way in which the histories of empire have informed those that structure of global wealth inequality. Because the real opposition towards telling this kind of history comes from individuals who would wish to keep the question around empire relegated in the cultural and symbolic sphere and don't want to talk about the actual substance of empire, which is the way in which people materially benefit even up until this day. You know, I think that there's a real attempt to make the history of empire a divisive project by focusing on the cultural and racial aspects of it, because there's a recognition and perhaps even a fear that some of the more material, the legal and economic aspects of it are things that are very popular. Offshore territories in the overseas territories of the British Virgin Islands and the Cayman Islands are not popular. Opposition to those histories are popular. The outsourcing dynamic that was developed by British imperialism with the partnership between the UK government and overseas companies like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company and the East India Company is not popular when we look at the way it's impacted the actual function of the state, even in the United Kingdom. People want to have greater public services rather than to see that outsourced. And so these elements of Britain's imperial legacy do have the potential to unify people against 
the structures and systems through which wealth inequality continues to be advanced up until today. And I think that this is something that anyone who wants to take seriously the question of the left behind, the question of leveling up, the question of greater equality, not only in Britain, but all across the world, has to try and pay attention to. You've consciously avoided addressing cultural legacies of empire in your book, but I imagine some people would want to pull it into the culture wars. How would you respond to that? There's a certain exhaustion that a lot of us are all feeling with the attempt to try and relegate all of these significant histories into questions simply of identity and culture. And That's not to say that there isn't a significant importance in the reframing of our cultural and symbolic sphere. You know, nothing's ever purely cultural. And the, you know, the the erecting of a statue of a former director of the Royal African Company at at the peak of its slave trading history in Bristol, the Edward Colson statue, is a very intimidating and aggressive act and the pulling down of that statue has an incredible significance for how people understand themselves their place of belonging in this country and their uh, ability to navigate their own public sphere with freedom and so i don't want to dismiss or belittle that but what i do want to do is just also point to the history that produced that statue you know edward colson wasn't simply a slave trader in terms of he was going to the Gulf of Guinea and capturing people on his own. He was the director of an entire company, an entire network, an entire economic juggernaut of the Royal African Company that had the monopoly over the slave trade within West Africa and that allowed him to be enriched to such an extent that he was able to therefore have his reputation watched with the erecting of a statue and the naming of buildings decades later. And so that material history, the history of the company, the history of the laws, the history of the wealth, is something that I think is obviously related to culture, but is an element that has been really under-interrogated under in our current conversation around decolonization. It's interesting with the example of Edward Colston, because one of the uh, arguments put forward for people who were unhappy with the statue being removed was that he had poured some of his wealth into charities for the city. Are there other examples of wealth gained through empire perhaps improving the lives of people in Britain, or is it mainly held by those colonial elites and increasing inequality? So, I mean, there's without doubt that the consequence of 400 years of global wealth accumulation raised the living standards within the United Kingdom to that that is above those in a lot of the places where that wealth was being extracted from. Um, the idea of some of those colonialists being philanthropists, I think, is also a kind of misunderstanding of the um, the, co- the role of the corporation within imperialism. Um, so someone like an Edward Colson and the Royal Africa Company, we look at the Hudson Bay Company and their philanthropic you know, I put that in quotation mark, endeavors, we have to recognize that this was part of what gave them the royal charter to be able to go and accumulate wealth all around the world. Before colonization, the corporate form was something that was largely used for charities, for schools, for hospitals, to allow people to establish something that would then live on after they had finished. And so when the 
Crown was looking for vehicles through which people could go and engage in imperial exploration and expropriation, the corporate form became the way in which people would present themselves that we are establishing this company that is going to be able to accumulate wealth from around the world, but that's going to live on beyond us. And as part of the charters that they were given, you can see this in the charters if you read the Hudson Bay Charter, if you read the Royal Niger Charter, there is a requirement for them to have to engage in these kind of philanthropic gestures, in these uplifting gestures that speak to the kind of more charitable history of the corporation before it commercializes. And so this isn't something that they're doing because they feel bad or something they're even doing out of what we might nowadays call corporate social responsibility. It's things that they're doing because they had to do that in order to be able to get the monopoly license to be able to accumulate the wealth all around the world. I say in the book at one point, it's almost like rewarding a airplane hijacker for having bought a ticket to get on the tra- uh, get on the plane in the first place. I mean, he's not going to be able to do it unless he buys that ticket. And so that history, I think, is something that's a little bit misunderstood. And the question of has the history of empire improved the lives of people in Britain? I think that that's something that might have felt true a century ago, maybe even 50 years ago. But I think one of the reasons that we're seeing so many young people being more open to these conversations around empire and decolonization is that they are feeling that the erosion of living standards that they're living through is tied to these histories of empire. In short, that it's no longer working for them in terms of the global wealth disparity distribution in the way that it might have done for their parents or grandparents. They look at the way in which outsourcing is connected to issues like precariety of employment, the way that it's connected to informal work, the way it's connected to the gig economy, and they feel that this is something that is not materially benefiting them. They look at the way in which the offshoring of wealth as we're seeing very much with the kind of Russian oligarch conversation, is tied to the escalation of asset prices, particularly the escalation of house prices by wealthy individuals who use London's property market as an alternative bank account and mean that everyday people, no matter what job they do, they could work as a teacher, they could work as a nurse, they could work as even doctors and lawyers, they are almost unable to buy house in a lot of our metropolitan areas unless they have the support of some other sources of wealth. And so that history is something that I think people are seeing and feeling that this isn't working for me anymore. This isn't benefiting for me anymore. And they're looking at figures like an Edward Colston and the history of the Royal African Company, not as something that is improving the lives of British people today, but something that is tied to the history of inequality, insecurity, and in-work poverty that is becoming increasingly the norm, not just in the former colonies, but also in the former heart of empire in Britain itself. Well, let's keep talking about Britain then. So in your view, is decolonisation the biggest contributing factor to growing inequality in the country? Or do you think there are other factors that are more to blame? Inequality is the result of a number of complex economic and social drivers. And so I wouldn't say that the history of empire is the only contributing factor, but I think it is a significant contributing factor. I think that as we're seeing right now with the attention being brought onto the offshoring of wealth and the role that Britain plays in that, how the City of London still acts as this conductor for global wealth protection we are seeing 
the history of the Cayman Islands and the British Virgin Islands and Bermuda and the way in which they responded to decolonization as 99% of the other colonies were transitioning into independent nation states and facing a lot of the problems that your Nkrumahs and your Mossadegh and your Manleys had to face, we saw the Cayman Islands, which wasn't even its own colony during the British Empire. It was ruled as part of Jamaica, but as Jamaica engages international sovereignty, we then see the Cayman Islands represent itself as this new type of offshore financial centre, um, a place that uses its reputational connection to Britain but also its geographical removal from the British mainland to present itself as the ultimate hideout for kleptocratic wealth all across the world. And the British Virgin Islands and Bermuda and Guernsey and Jersey and many of the other British overseas territories and crown dependencies take up that same position. And so that's a huge contributing factor to separating the world of wealth from the world of work, the world in which No matter how hard you work, no matter how many jobs you do, no matter how hard you try, you're unable to get the security that you expected just 50 or 60 years ago. There has been an erosion of that security in the United Kingdom, and that is greatly tied to the way in which the history of empire reframed the global economy in a way that devastated not just people in Accra and Lagos or Kingston, but also people in Blackpool and South Shields in the right here in the United Kingdom. And changing tack slightly now, you say that there is amnesia surrounding decolonisation in Britain. Why do you think that is? I think that one of the contributing factors towards the amnesia that we have about decolonisation, the fact that we know so little about this huge globally significant transformation. We don't know when countries became decolonized. We don't know who the major figures were in decolonization. A part of this amnesia comes from the privatization of empire that I've already mentioned, the fact that so much of the empire was kind of encased within the histories of these private companies like the Anglo-Iranian Oil Company and the Ashanti Goldfields Company and the Royal Niger Company. But I think it's also got a lot to do with the way in which we bracket what we count as British history into what happened only on the island of Britain and ignore so much of what happens in what modern politics might call global Britain. Which for me just never made any sense, considering that even when we have the creation of Britain as a modern nation state, it's already as an imperial entity By the time we get the Act of the Union, which brings together Scotland and England as a single nation state, England already has an imperial sovereignty over Jamaica, Barbados, and as the Virginia slave colonies in the United States of America. It has a longer relationship with places like Jamaica constitutionally than it does even in terms of Scotland. And so this entire global history that existed with Britain from its point of inception is ignored when we think about what counts as British history. And I think that that's a real failing, not only in understanding what made Britain what it is today, but also in understanding the modern world. When we think about decolonization in the 20th century, we are thinking about the process through which almost three quarters of the world transitions from colonial subjectivity to being sovereign nation states. And this type of global transformation, for me, is something that if you ignore that, 
in the histories of the 20th century, it's almost like ignoring the American Revolution or the French Revolution in the histories of the 18th century. This global transformation that includes the independence struggles in Ghana and India and Nigeria and Kenya and Jamaica are significant parts of our human history, but the main character in this whole story, the United Kingdom, now almost forgets that it was even part of the play at all. And so that's what I try and do by retelling those stories in this particular book, try and bring back those histories to our understanding of not just Britain, but also the wider world, and show how they connect to the way in which we live our daily lives in a very material basis every day in the 21st century. That was Kojo Karam. His new book, Uncommonwealth, is out now from John Murray Press. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley.